Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv, the Tuesday edition. We're glad you're able to join us today. If you're joining us from the Zoom app that you get from BibleQuest.tv, we would invite you to open up your Q&A window and type in any questions you may have, or if you want to call in and use your audio uh, from the Zoom app, just click on the little hand icon, and that'll raise your hand, knowing, telling us you want to ask your question or comment verbally and audio, using the computer audio. And if you're coming in through the uh, BibleQuest YouTube channel, Jonathan is monitoring the comments on that one, and we want to hear from you as well. Keep in mind, uh, last time I checked, YouTube channel sometimes could be as slow or behind a live uh, um, presentation as much as, as, as little as 10 seconds, but as much as 23 seconds. I noticed that the other day. So there's a delay on the YouTube channel, so bear with us as we try to get to your comments there. With that said, I want to introduce our panelists. Scott, good to see you with us today. How are you doing? Sure, I'm doing all right. How about yourself? Good, good. We have a very good uh, topic of discussion. We have a couple of things, Scott, so keep, as program director, please keep it rolling with us, if you don't mind. And then we also have Stephen with us. Stephen, uh, good to see you from Harrisburg. You know, Stephen, I just found out that there's a Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I didn't know that. And what, what I bring that up with is because um, uh, Jeff always has the problem with Harrisburg or Harrisburg when he talks to Chase on the Wednesday program. So now that I know that there's a Harrisburg, I had, hope I don't get mixed up in in, in so you're from there. How are you doing, Steve? Yes, I'm doing well. And I, I lived in Virginia for a while when I was in high school. And there was a Harrisonburg, Virginia, just down I-81 from us. And so uh, Harrisonburg is only about two and a half hours away. But it's also complicated that there's a Harrisonburg, Pennsylvania. I didn't know that. So, yeah. uh, But yes, we're, we're the father here, the Harrisburg, <laughs> not the Harrisonburg. Okay. <laughs> And Jonathan, our webcast engineer and fellow panelist, is with us. Hi, Jonathan. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm uh, trying to fix the audio here, but uh, other than that, I'm doing well. Oh, yeah. You know, I bought my new set of uh, earrings. I call them earrings, the ones you have, and I just haven't used it yet on the show, but I will do that next time. All right, so, guys, we're, we're ready to go. Let me get up the first question. Um, and the question is, uh, how should one deal with shame? It's different from the guilt of a bad action, a separate thing. This is the shame of who you are and what, and what you've become. The shame that you are, I'm sorry, the shame that you are worth less than your peers and your destruction is self-inflicted. Shame over poor physical health that feels self-inflicted because you're not as strong as you thought you were, or shame at ignorance for thinking that'll never happen to me. The shame comes when, you're, when you've dug your own grave and the shame you will bring to family by continuing to exist. I'm looking to see, I'm looking to see if there's real hope out there, a real chance that things will improve and it's not just all pointless or is hope false. This comes from an anonymous person who is a viewer of our program, and it's a very good question, one of serious concern. Scott, you want to start with that? All right, and there's going to be another question that we'll get to later uh, that will tie in in some ways, 
But uh, let's talk about here shame and guilt, see some Bible passages, uh, discuss how they're similar, discuss their right place, discuss where they're beneficial uh, or where they're not. And, and when I say that, feeling guilty is kind of like shame, but guilt is, is, is something else, as we're going to see. And that's a matter of whether you're guilty or not. And Stephen has a chart that's going to kind of help us through that. And so, Stephen, why don't you go ahead and get us started on that? Yeah, let me get uh, my screen shared here real quick. All right. Um, so what we want to talk about is this idea of what's the difference between guilt and shame. And these two things sometimes overlap and sometimes they don't overlap. So what we're going to do is this is a little chart I put together um, dealing with the difference here. Um, so in the rows, horizontally, we have the row of being guilty or not guilty. And then in the columns, we're going to have one dealing with being ashamed or feeling ashamed, and then one dealing with being not ashamed. Um, so we'll deal first with the case where someone is guilty, which, of course, when someone is guilty, the idea is you've done something wrong. You've, you've broken one of God's laws. And whether you feel ashamed or not, you're either guilty or not guilty of that. Um, and so let's look at actually. To illustrate that, let's look at it in a court of law reference, which then will translate over into a spiritual reality as well. Uh, there's been a number of criminals who, after being arrested, convicted, uh, found guilty, they sit there and the judge notices they have no remorse. They did it. They admit they did it. They don't feel bad at all. The judge declares them guilty because that's a fact. And... Uh, uh, they can either be ashamed of their guilt or not. But go ahead. Yeah. And so taking that idea of realizing that you're guilty and then whether or not you feel ashamed about that, uh, look at Acts chapter 2. Um, Peter has preached the sermon here on the day of Pentecost, and he tells them at the end of the sermon that, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's Acts 2.36. And that would have been devastating to, to hear that, oh, I thought he was a blasphemer. I thought that he, but oh, he is actually the Lord in Christ. Here's the scriptures to prove it. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So, so here you've got people who are guilty and they are also ashamed of what they did. Um, so they we put X two And they recognize their guilt, which is why they have Right. It. Exactly. And that's why they say, what, what can we possibly do? We're guilty. How can we get past this? And um, verse 38 gives the answer to that. X 2.38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This would have been a breath of fresh air in this moment of despair that they're guilty, they're ashamed of that, and they're told, listen, you can move to a state where you are no longer guilty, and you no longer need to feel ashamed of what you've done, in the sense of you're not, you don't need to carry around that guilt anymore. Um, and that's 
the picture of forgiveness that we're given in Acts 2.38. If they will repent, turn back from those sins, and if they will be immersed in water for forgiveness of those sins, those sins are washed away. Um, so I love the description that is given in Romans 8, verse 1. If we were to use a verse to describe this state of being not guilty and also not ashamed, uh, Romans 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we're baptized into Christ, if we're walking in him, uh, there's no condemnation for those who have repented from their sins and have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, after these people who had been cut to the heart and wanted to know what should they do after they repented, after they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, you read down uh, and it says uh, in verse 46, day by day, continued steadfastly with one accord in the temple. At the end of the verse, they took food with gladness and singleness of heart. The Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing. The rich young ruler who did not repent went on his way sorrowful. But there should be joy and forgiveness. And when we know that God has forgiven us, we also need to forgive ourselves. Yep, that's right. I've heard it put this way before. Uh, and this comes from Micah chapter 7. Uh, at the end of that uh, prophecy where he talks about, it gives this image of forgiveness there at the end of the book of Micah. Uh, let me pull it up here real quick, make sure I get it right. Uh, Micah chapter 7 and uh, verse 19, Micah seven nineteen. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And I've heard it put this way before, that when God casts our sin into the depths of the sea, he posts a sign that says, no fishing. <laughs> um, and I, I think that's helpful. And just that it's easy for us to, to pull up past sins that we've been forgiven of and kind of self-punish and, and, and do a lot of things that leave us feeling very hopeless when we need to, when God forgives us, really believe that and, and accept the, the forgiveness that God gives us um, and what a blessing that is. So let's talk about these other two boxes here on our chart. Um, it's possible to be guilty and to feel ashamed. It's also possible to be guilty, but then to not feel ashamed for what we've done. And Scott, you kind of alluded to this again, the courtroom scene where it's, they might say, oh, he showed no remorse for what he did. Look at the book of Jeremiah chapter six. Um, this is what happened at one point to the children of Israel and their history. Uh, Jeremiah has to prophesy during a very bleak time uh, in the kingdom of Israel. And uh, he says this uh, in Jeremiah 6, uh, we'll start in verse 13. He says, for from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly saying, peace, peace. When there is no peace. And then look at verse 15. This is Jeremiah 6, 15. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. So for, for these Israelites, were they guilty at yes. this point? 
Yep, they were guilty. Absolutely. Even their leaders, prophets and priests, they're all guilty. But were they ashamed? No. Should have been, but were not. They were not ashamed. And that's a scary state to be in, isn't it? Uh, when we kind of sear our conscience and get to the point where we're doing stuff that's wrong and we don't even feel it anymore. Um, Paul, in writing to Timothy, will talk about people, men and false teachers who have their consciences seared. And the idea of like, they don't feel that shame anymore. Um, and it's kind of scary if we look at our culture uh, and things that once were shameful and rightfully perceived to be shameful are now being done openly and there's no shame. Um, so what needs to happen when we're in this state? Uh, we need to be pricked in our conscience. We need to wake up to the sinfulness of what we're doing. And I like the way it's put in Romans chapter six, verse 21. When do you guys read that for us? Romans six, 21. Yeah, I can read that. Flip over there. I got it. But what fruit oh, yeah, are you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. How yeah. far did you want me to read? Just that one? Yeah, that's good. And so here Paul's talking about Christians who've been freed from sin and are now serving righteousness. And he says, looking back, you know, what fruit were you gaining when you were doing those things? And now you are ashamed of those things. Yeah. Uh, and that's where we need to, to get to is when, if we're doing something and we're not ashamed of it is to be woken up uh, by listening to the word of God, listening to uh, what he says is right and wrong, and then becoming ashamed and putting those things in the past, repenting of those things, which yes. is what Romans is all about. And notice there the, the, the difference because in our chart, we've got, guilty, ashamed people in Max 2.37. And when they're forgiven, now, it's not that they're not guilty because they didn't sin. It's that they are acquitted. They are now righteous because Jesus has paid for their sins and they are that forgiveness has been applied to them. They're forgiven. And so their current life now, they shouldn't be ashamed of their current life. But from Romans 6, you might still have shame in looking back. But there is a difference because notice in Romans 6, it says those past things of which you are now ashamed. It doesn't mean you should now be ashamed of who you are now. But if looking back, you know, the Christian in Acts 2, if during the Lord's Supper, he's remembering himself saying, crucify him, crucify him. He should be ashamed of what he had been back then. Now he knows enough. He should be ashamed of that but he shouldn't be ashamed of who he is now because if, if he gave his life for us, Romans eight, that, that whole section, you know, uh, who is he that condemns us when, when Jesus is paid for our sins? That's right. And I love the very next verse after he says, uh, you know, you're now ashamed of those things. The end of those things is death, but look at verse 22. This is Romans six twenty-two. But now that you have been set free from sin yes. and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Yes. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is a beautiful thing that God has done for us. Thank God for that. Yeah. So let's talk about one more category here, if there's nothing else on that one. Um, there are times where we can be not guilty of something. It's already been forgiven or we haven't actually done it but we still feel 
ashamed or we still feel guilty. And that doesn't make it so. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And here we have uh, Paul writing to the Corinthian Christians about someone who had apparently been disciplined uh, by the church there for a sin that they had committed. And they what he rep- says, and they repented, exactly right. So look at verse uh, 5, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5. And when someone uh, read uh, uh, verses 5 through 8. Um, in- all right. But if any has caused sorrow, excuse me, if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in part that are pressed not too heavily, but to you all. Sufficient to such one is this punishment which was inflicted by the many. So that contrarywise, you should rather forgive him and comfort him, lest by any means such one should be swallowed up with his over much sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you, confirm your love toward him. Okay. So, so here you got a guy who was in sin. He realized he was guilty of that sin, felt a godly sorrow, and then he repented of that sin. And now he's in a situation where the people who participated in that discipline of helping him feel sorrowful for that, are now needing to reaffirm their love for him. Uh, And the thing that he's in danger of, what's the danger in verse 7? He might be swallowed up by what? Overmuch. Yeah. Excessive sorrow is the translation I have. And that is a real danger for us. Once we've been forgiven, Satan would love to keep telling us that we're guilty and get us to despair and not have the joy and the peace that comes from believing God's forgiveness and being forgiven by God. And so here we've got someone who uh, needs to be comforted, needs to go back to their forgiveness and needs to be told by the brethren, we forgive you too. And it's going to be all right. Scott. And the reason that the congregation needed discipline was because previously he obviously had not had enough shame. So this was a guilty person who didn't have enough shame and it took the other brethren taking a stand against him to produce the shame. In fact, isn't that what it says in Second Thessalonians 3? He have no company with those that are walking disorderly to the end that they might be ashamed. So when he didn't have enough shame, those around him needed to help him realize how shameful his behavior was. When he got enough shame, and what does Second Corinthians 7 say? What leads to repentance? Godly sorrow. Yeah, he needed enough godly sorrow. He needed enough shame for guilt to cause him to repent. But once he's repented, now he needs to be thankful for the forgiveness, be thankful for the correction, be thankful for the opportunity to go in the right direction. If instead we stay mired down in the misery of the shame, then there's another one of Satan's devices because what's the last verse of Second Corinthians two? Yeah, well, verse eleven, Second uh, Corinthians two eleven, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. He can use too little shame or too much shame. He can use too little sorrow 
or too much sorrow. With the Apostle Paul, when Apostle Paul was binding men and women and dragging them to prison, beating men, trying to get them to blaspheme, voting for disciples to be put to death, did he have sorrow? Nope. Did he have shame? Nope. He should have. Once he realized he did what was wrong, what did he spend three days doing and not doing? Praying and not eating. (laughs) Yes, yes. And then he got busy telling people that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, if he had stayed in shame, if he had stayed, who am I to do anything after all the bad that I did? Who I that wouldn't have that wasn't what God wanted him to do. But if he had become useless due to feelings of shame, who would have been pleased? Satan. Yeah. So don't let Satan win. Don't let him get us to not feel shame when we need to. Don't let Satan win by keeping us bound to shame after we've repented. Yeah, that's right. And thinking about Paul and that specific example, uh, Scott, will you take us through Philippians 3 and just Paul's mindset there and how we can, if we're caught in this mindset of uh, of shame where we're not guilty anymore, how we can get out of that. Yeah. So Paul is talking about the Judaizers who are trying to impose uh, the Judaism and probably particularly a kind of pharisaical view of Judaism. And Paul reminds him, listen, don't do that. But I used to be there. I used to be a Pharisee. Uh, back up in verse five, he said, I was a Pharisee. Verse six, I persecuted the church. But then he goes down and he talks about in verse uh, 14, or let's start with verse 13. Brethren, I count not myself yet to have laid hold, but one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind, stretching forward to the things that are before, I press on toward the goal under the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So what is the direction there? Look at the language. Which direction is Paul going? It's on the up and up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's pressing forward, pressing on. So many people live their lives in reverse. And you can do it for a number of reasons. Uh, what are some of the ways that people can get bogged down in their past life instead of moving forward? Just dwelling on the bad things that they've done and kind of replaying, you know, Oh, I just can't believe that I did that thing in my past. And how could God ever forgive me for that? Even if they've already asked for forgiveness and repented of that. Uh, it's easy to go back and dwell on that. And if anybody could have done that, it was Paul. Right. I mean, wow. Uh, I also think about like David in the Old Testament after what he did with Bathsheba and the aftermath of that. I mean, we've all done some terrible things and things that we don't want to talk about on this program because of we feel terrible about what we did. But you think about somebody who committed adultery and then lied about it and then tried to cover it up by having one of his best men, most loyal to him, having him killed by the enemy, knowing that that's what he did. I mean, wow. Uh, If anybody could have been overwhelmed by the guilt of their life, it would have been David. Reads 51. Yeah. Jonathan. Yeah. Uh, And and I think just a a quick 
uh, interjection here on the responsibility of other people um, that aren't feeling that shame. Um, it's possible for people to lead to um, bringing up that shame and that guilt for another person. So God, we know reading in, in the scripture, and Stephen brought up the passage in Micah and, and other places um, where God has said that, that he remembers our sin no more. He throws our sin away. It's gone. God forgives us. And when he forgives us, that's forgiven. It, it's, it's done with. Um, but people don't always forgive other people uh, in the way that they need to. And so bringing that back up and, and rehashing things that have happened in the past, um, whenever somebody has truly repented and, and asked for forgiveness and they've changed and, and confronting them about past events that they've done can lead people to shame also. So other people have responsibility into not leading to other people's shame as well. That's right. That's exactly what you see in Second Corinthians 2. Confirm your love towards him, not say, well, we'll be watching you confirm your love toward him. Uh, let's pick up the pace here because there's several things we need to get to uh, as well. Uh, a couple of things real quickly here on Philippians 3. This idea of living, oh, true, go ahead. I had two passages that I'd put together that uh, helps me uh, combining and dealing with the shame and then looking, you know, the, is hope hopeless? And yeah. If you, when Jesus was crucified, that was not only the most painful and excruciating suffering he went through, but the crucifixion was designed to humiliate, to bring shame upon you, not only upon you, but your friends and your family. That we can't imagine how shameful that was because we know we never live we don't live in that kind of a world back then. But that is shameful. And and if you look at Hebrews twelve, verse two, how did Jesus deal with this? He says, looking uh, Paul's right, well, the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of, of God now. So he despised the shame, which he didn't even deserve. But that, and he was able to do that. I mean, he looked forward. He knew what was ahead. He didn't do anything to deserve the punishment and the shame. Uh, and right. On the other hand, I have. I have done things that deserve punishment and shame. In fact, I brought shame not only to myself, but to my family. And how do I deal with that then? Well, I looked then what Paul said. Well, actually, Jesus said to Paul in Romans 5. He says, therefore, in Romans 5, verse 1, he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand in which we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. Rec you guys have been talking about being forgiven and recognizing we're forgiven. No more shame. We could let it go and look forward to the glory that he has promised us. So no matter what I've done, no matter what, as Jonathan, you said, people come up and say, you know, you did that. Oh, yeah, that's so shameful. I have to forget about it. If I've been truly forgiven, and we know how to be forgiven. Shame could be put away. Look for that hope. I should say we have the hope looking for that glory. Jonathan. 
Um, and, and I, I don't want to shift the subject too much, but just a couple of things that I want to bring up, because um, I think this is all very helpful and applicable for people um, who are uh, suffering from, from self-inflicted shame. Um, but I think there's another side of it that can also happen, um, and, and how the question was worded, it brought up um, this feeling that, that you get um, from being worth less than, than your peers. It's the idea of, of being worthless. Um, and I think a, a lot of people can relate to that. Um, but I, I want to bring up just uh, one verse in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 20. Uh, it says, uh, you were brought, talking to Christians, if you're a Christian, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Um, and so to God, it's important to realize um, that his people are worth so much more than you could ever pay or imagine. Um, we're worth the blood of Jesus Christ. We were bought with that price in God's in God's eyes. You are worth everything. And there are the parables in in Luke chapter fifteen that illustrate how God feels about about individual people and how how valuable that they are um, to Him. So um, thinking that that you're not worth something, what what defines the value of something is how much somebody is willing to pay for it. Um, so I, I can have. I think we've talked about this on this on this before. I can have uh, a coin that is worth one cent, but it may be a really old coin and Scott may be a collector of coins and he really wants that coin. He may pay more than one cent for that. It's only worth one cent to me, but it's worth a whole lot to Scott. And so what somebody's willing to pay for something um, is what defines that value. And look at the price that, that God paid for you and for us. Um, there's a lot of value on, on human souls and on human life um, in God's eyes. And the other side of it, uh, I know people who, and I've experienced self-inflicted shame before, where I've done something that I'm, uh, I don't like talking about, that I don't want people to know about, and and it gets rehashed in my mind, and I feel worthless from that. But I know people who experience shame from things that they haven't done, but have been done to them. Right. And um, that's that's hard. That is very difficult to deal with. Um, so victims of abuse, um, physical abuse, uh, sexual abuse, things like that. Um, and that's hard to get over that shame and, and be identified as that type of, of victim. Um, but there's a verse I think that's really powerful. It's in one of my favorite Psalms, in Psalm 56. Um, and this kind of ties into the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But in Psalm 56, David writes in verse 8, um, You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? And then in verse 10, he says, in God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Um, and so David has this, this mindset and understands that God is very aware of everything that David has gone through and everything that people have put David through. And God, God knows them. And he cares and he loves David. He, he knows all of his fears. He knows all of his tossings. They're all in God's records. He knows that they're there. And God still loves him. And so when Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, you need to help this person overcome their sorrow by affirming your love for them. And when yeah. I find myself in a situation where I'm so ashamed and so guilty, and, and I just reach out to somebody and I just pour it all out to them, I think, well, what am I looking for? What do I want? And what I want from that person is to know that they love me and that they care for me. And that goes a long way. And that really helps put my mind at ease um, that there's someone out there that loves me and cares about me. And I think it's just really important for people that, especially that suffer from, from not self-inflicted shame, but from, from shame that comes from what someone else has done to you 
there is someone that loves you and it's God. And, and God is very aware of everything that you've gone through. And, and he's there to, to love and, and protect and, and to help you. Um, you don't have to be afraid of, of how other people perceive you or how, how uh, different people have treated you in the past. Um, God still cares and he still loves you. This is a really important point because a lot of people do feel shame when they didn't do anything shameful. Let's hit a few points real quick. Uh, Drew, you read about Jesus. Was Jesus treated shamefully? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did people do things? They spit on him. They mock him. But did Jesus need to be ashamed? Not at all. All right. Is there a book in the Bible about a fellow who shouldn't have been ashamed, but all of his friends think that he should be ashamed? Are you referring to Job? Sounds like, sounds like the book of Job. Yeah, yeah. And so sometimes other people will try to make you feel ashamed when you shouldn't feel ashamed. Or there will be circumstances that aren't your fault. Uh, did a funeral recently, and um, one of the relatives didn't want some information told because I think they felt a lot of pain and perhaps shame about how terrible a previous person had been in the family that had just abandoned little children that left in the dark, just put out by their parent. And, and the thing is, whose fault is it when a parent just abandons and puts their little children out in the dark and, and then they have to go on their own and, and, and end up in an orphanage? Whose fault is that? The parents. The parents. Yeah, yeah. But children can feel terrible about those things. In a divorce, how do children often end up feeling? It's their fault. Yeah, and they're they're ashamed of what's happened. They're they're they and they feel it's their fault. There's going to be many times in life where a lot of people go through absolute horrible things, and part of the problem is the guilty people not feeling shameful, and the innocent victims being left with the shame. And let shame be where it where it belongs on the guilty. Let's jump back to Philippians three real quick. I want to touch on this for a minute. Um, I mentioned some people live in the past. I don't want to spend much time on this, but I'll mention a couple other ways people live in the past. Uh, do some people live in the past because they're constantly thinking about some bad treatment some other person did to them? Mm-hmm. Do some people live in the past because they're remembering some good things they did long ago, whether in sports or how popular they were in high school, or maybe you're the church of Laodicea and you're thinking, oh yeah, we used to do some good stuff. Yeah, yeah. You meet the, the, the former sports star who is still coasting on the glory yes. of the glory days. Yeah. And Paul says what in Philippians 3? Forgetting the things that are behind, and for him that was the persecutions he'd done and advancements in Judaism. Forgetting the things that are behind, I press on before. When he says forget, does he mean he doesn't remember that he persecuted Christians? No, he just listed it earlier in chapter 3. Exactly. But that's not his focus. There is a place for remembering that we have sinned. For instance, in Second Peter, it mentions people who forgot the cleansing of their own sins are foresighted uh, or nearsighted. Uh, verse 9, he that lacks these things is blind, seeing only what is near, having forgotten the cleansing of their own sins. Uh, Titus 
tells us, remember that you used to behave like that. But there's a difference between remembering it and what? But with the healthy is dwelling on it. Yes, yes, just dwelling on it and causing it to not have you move forward. So I want to, my final comment is going to be this and then turn it back to you guys. Um, it's kind of like the windshield in the rear view mirror. When you're in your car, how big is your windshield? Real big. The whole front of the car. Really big. How big is the rear view mirror? Well, maybe about this big. <laughs> Relatively yeah. small. So, Drew, you just got that new car. It has both, doesn't it? It's windshield and rear mirror. Yeah. You don't want to be ignorant of what's behind you, and thus you need the rear view mirror. But why is the windshield bigger? You need to see that more. Yes, where you're going is more important than where you've been. Imagine how disastrous the highways would be if we all had a rear view mirror this big and a windshield this big, and too many people live their life that way. Don't live your life that way. Yeah. Amen. Anything else on this chart on the guilt versus shame discussion? No, it's a good chart. I'm glad you made that, Stephen. Good chart. Yeah, I hope it's helpful. Yes, it is. <clears throat> Let me stop share here. Well, we got Did another you? question. Didn't, didn't mean to take or oh, so it's not. What was that, Scott? Do you think we have our second question? Yeah, so we have a second question here uh, from another viewer. It said, um, it it ties in, but it's from a different person. It says, my question is, if an openly gay lesbian uh, Christian kills themselves, are they likely to go to hell? Why? Why not? Right. Um, I... Also, there is one comment I need to make about our last question, and this is a very serious question. We need to get to it, but I, there was one thing that I should have mentioned, and I forgot from this last thing. There are sometimes consequences of sins that stick with us past forgiveness, uh, a venereal disease. Um, a David had a consequence in his life due to his sin, but we can still move forward and do what we need to now and appreciate that we've been forgiven, even if there are consequences. It may include serving a jail term. It may include, you know, having to pay back money or whatever. Those are consequences. All right, so now to this question, I'm sorry for interrupting this question because this is very, very, very important. First off, let's break this down into two different things. One, the question of suicide. The other, the question of uh, sexually immoral behavior. First off, if anybody in the audience is, is contemplating suicide, Take this very, very, very seriously and do something about this. Talk to someone you know or love that will help you. Uh, you can also contact a uh, suicide prevention line where you have people, professionals. They're not coming from the word of God, but they're trained to deal with people who are in a bit of despair and thinking about suicide. And they understand some of the psychology going on. Anybody in the audience as any thoughts along that line, don't keep it to yourself. Talk to someone. Uh, you could talk to us, but you may not know us. We may not know you. We might not know the circumstances and, and uh, the, the places in your life where you're going to be able to find security and strength and help. 
to talk to somebody who knows you and can help you. Uh, and we can try to help you too, but talk to somebody that knows you personally and can help you and also talk to someone that can help you with this. So now, Scott, I just put up the screen that has that uh, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, and people that are on a podcast are just not able to see that number. But the number is, well, you can Google it and get it real easy, but for right now it's 800-273-8255. And these will be professionals, as you were discussing, that could handle those types of things. Stephen, you are going to say something too? I was just going to read the number. Thanks for doing that. Okay. So now we're going to turn to the spiritual side of things. Uh, and one of the, I mean, you go back to Ten Commandments, and it is thou shalt not kill. That would include not killing my enemy, not killing my brother, not killing my neighbor, not killing uh, myself, not killing my unborn child, etc. And so this is sin. It's our obligation to turn from sin. And one of the one of the saddest parts about suicide is that it is a sin that puts a person in a position to not usually to not be able to turn around their choices later. Uh, I heard I heard suicide described as a permanent solution to a temporary problem. It's not a solution, but it's a permanent response to something that with God and with, with turning to the Lord and with help from those around you that love you doesn't have to be stated. Go ahead, Stephen. Yeah. And one thing that's helpful to look at just biblically is the different responses given from Peter and Judas, uh, who both yeah. turned their back on Jesus. Uh, Peter at the end of Matthew 26 has denied Jesus three times that he ever knew the man. And uh, then verse 74, 75, this is Matthew 26, 74. Then he, Peter, began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Uh, Peter had a decision in this moment of what to do with his despair. He goes out and he weeps, and it looks like he's about to give up on following Jesus, but he doesn't. He comes back from that. Judas, on the other hand, in, ver in chapter 27, verse 3, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. And like you mentioned, Scott, it's just it's so devastating to see this response to despair. Um, Peter responds in a remorseful way, but in a way that gives him more time to turn back. And Peter goes on to become a pillar in the early church and to serve yeah. other people with his life. And he's forgiven for that. Uh, Judas chooses to end it all, and it's just it's terrifying to see that. Think how much this uh, brings out what we were talking about earlier in the program. Judas and, and Peter, guilty? Yeah. yeah, both guilty. Then when they look at their guilt, are they both ashamed? 
They are both ashamed. Should they have been ashamed? Yeah. Yeah. One of them deals with it in a healthy way. One doesn't. Judas commits suicide. Peter returns to the Lord, is forgiven, and follows him. So I guess the other part of this question is it's asked with the dealing with the specific sin, but it's just the question of really what happens when someone dies outside of a relationship with God or living in open sin. And one important thing to understand is that the sin of homosexuality is mentioned specifically in the question, but this is true of any sin that one is walking in, uh, is living openly in rebellion against what God has said. Um, and Go ahead, Scott. Yeah, in fact, let's let's end with a passage from 1 Corinthians 6 that mentions that sin, but along with other sins. It's not that, oh, this is the sin not to commit. No, all of these are sins not to commit. And then it also ends with the hope, which is where forgiveness is. So it's a reminder, and it's written to the Corinthians, and they need to be reminded in verse 9, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Give it, chapter, give it the chapter again. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. First Corinthians 6, verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And by the way, who does the unrighteous include? Everybody that has sinned. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. But thankfully, the Lord laid our sins on Christ so that if we will turn to him, as we'll see here in verse 11, we can be forgiven. Let that shame and guilt go away. But if we won't, we need to remember this. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, a translation sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, or those that abuse themselves with men, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. It's not just this sin or that sin, none of these and others, like Galatians says, and such like. But the, the part we want to focus on is this in verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then the guilt is taken away. And then we can rejoice in being, even though we've lived lives that were unworthy, to be accepted like the prodigal son was. And there is rejoicing in heaven over any sinner that repents. That's you, that's me, that's any sinner that repents. Thanks, everybody.